From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Sunday morning session of the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dallin H. Oates, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday morning session of the 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings and blessings to those of you who are participating in these proceedings throughout the world by radio, television, the internet, or satellite transmission. We acknowledge the general authorities and the general officers of the Church who are in attendance this morning. The music for this session will be provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Andrew Unsworth and Brian Mathias at the organ. The choir opened this meeting by singing, Sing Praises to Him and will now favor us with how firm a foundation. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Bradley D. Foster of the Seventy, after which the choir will sing, I Feel My Savior's Love.
our Heavenly Father. On this Sabbath morning, we bow our heads humbly in expressions of gratitude and prayer. How grateful we are, Father, for Thy beautiful plan of happiness for all of Thy children, no matter when or where they lived upon the earth, and for the opportunity each of us have to help to gather our brothers and sisters back to our heavenly home. We love and appreciate living apostles and prophets and how they help us to see thy plan clearly. Father, bless those who have prepared messages for us today through song and word and help us to feel by the power of the Spirit those things that we each need to receive today through personal revelation. And we ask that the Holy Ghost would write those things upon our hearts that we will remember them always. For these things we pray in the sacred name of him who makes all of this possible, even our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.
We will now be pleased to hear from Elder Dale G. Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Sister Sharon L. Eubank, First Counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency, Elder Quentin L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us. My dear brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ desire to bless each of us. The question of how to access and obtain those blessings has been the subject of theological debate and discussion for centuries. Some contend that blessings are completely earned. We receive them only through our works. Others argue that God has already chosen who He will bless and how, and that these determinations are unchangeable. Both positions are fundamentally flawed. Blessings from heaven are neither earned by frenetically accruing good deed coupons nor by helplessly waiting to see if we win the blessing lottery. No, the truth is much more nuanced but more appropriate for the relationship between a loving Heavenly Father and His potential heirs—us. Restored truth reveals that blessings are never earned, but faith-inspired actions on our part, both initial and ongoing, are essential. As we consider how we receive blessings from God, let us liken heavenly blessings to a massive pile of wood. Imagine at the center a small mound of kindling topped by a layer of wood chips. Sticks come next, then small logs, and finally huge logs. This wood pile contains an enormous amount of fuel capable of producing light and heat for days. Envision next to the wood pile a single match, the kind with a phosphorus tip. For the energy in the woodpile to be released, the match needs to be struck and the kindling lit. The kindling will quickly catch fire and cause the larger pieces of wood to burn. Once this combustion reaction starts, it continues until all the wood is burned or the fire is deprived of oxygen. Striking the match and lighting the kindling are small actions that enable the potential energy of the wood to be released. Until the match is struck, nothing happens, regardless of the size of the woodpile. If the match is struck but not applied to the kindling, the amount of light and heat released from the match alone is minuscule, and the combustion energy in the wood remains unreleased. If oxygen is not supplied at any point, the combustion reaction stops. In a similar way, most blessings that God desires to give us require action on our part—action based on our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the Savior is a principle of action and of power. First, we act in faith. Then the power comes according to God's will and timing. The sequence is crucial. The required action, though, is always tiny when compared to the blessings we ultimately receive. 
Consider what happened when fiery flying serpents came among the ancient ancient Israelites on their way to the Promised Land. The bite of a poisonous serpent was fatal. But a bitten individual could be healed by looking at a brass serpent fashioned by Moses and placed on a pole. How much energy does it take to look at something? All who looked accessed the powers of heaven and were healed. Other Israelites who were bitten failed to look at the brazen serpent and died. Perhaps they lacked the faith to look. Perhaps they didn't believe that such a simple action could trigger the promised healing. Or perhaps they willfully hardened their hearts and rejected the counsel of God's prophet. The principle of activating blessings that flow from God is eternal. Like those ancient Israelites, we too must act on our faith in Jesus Christ to be blessed. God has revealed that there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. That being said, you don't earn a blessing. That notion is false. But you do have to qualify for it. Our salvation comes only through the merits and grace of Jesus Christ. The immensity of His atoning sacrifice means that the woodpile is infinite. Our puny actions approach zero in comparison. But they're not zero, and they're not insignificant. In the dark, a match that is lit can be seen for miles. In fact, it can be seen in heaven because small acts of faith are required to ignite God's promises. To receive a desired blessing from God, act with faith, striking the metaphorical match on which the heavenly blessing is contingent. For example, one of the objects of prayer is to secure blessings that God is willing to grant but that are made conditional on our asking. Alma cried out for mercy, and his pains resolved. He was no longer harrowed up by the memory of his sins. His joy overwhelmed his pain, all because he cried out with faith in Jesus Christ. The activation energy needed for us is to have enough faith in Christ to sincerely ask God in prayer and accept His will and timing for the answer. Often, the activation energy needed for blessings requires more than just looking or asking. Ongoing, repeated, faith-filled actions are required. In the middle of the 19th century, Brigham Young directed a group of Latter-day Saints to explore and settle Arizona, an arid region in North America. After reaching Arizona, the group ran out of water and feared they would perish. They pled with God for help. Soon rain and snow fell, allowing them to fill their barrels with water and provide for their livestock. Grateful and refreshed, they returned to Salt Lake City rejoicing in the goodness of God. Upon their return, they reported the details of their expedition to Brigham Young and pronounced their conclusion 
that Arizona was uninhabitable. After listening to the report, Brigham Young asked a man in the room what he thought about the expedition and the miracle. That man, Daniel W. Jones, tersely replied, I would have filled up, went on, and prayed again. Brother Brigham put his hand on Brother Jones and said, This is the man that shall take charge of the next trip to Arizona. We can all recall times when we have pushed on and prayed again and blessings resulted. The experiences of Michael and Marion Holmes illustrate these principles. Michael and I served together as Area 70s. I was always thrilled whenever he was called on to pray in our meetings because his deep spirituality was readily apparent. He knew how to speak with God. I loved to hear him pray. Early in their marriage, though, Michael and Marion were not praying or attending church. They were busy with three little children and a successful construction company. Michael didn't feel that he was a religious man. One evening, their bishop came to their home and encouraged them to begin praying. After the bishop left, Michael and Marion decided that they would try to pray. Before going to bed, they knelt at their bedside, and uncomfortably, Michael began. After a few awkward words of prayer, Michael abruptly stopped, saying, Marion, I can't do this. As he stood and began walking away, Marion grabbed him by the hand, dragged him back to his knees, and said, Mike, you can do this. Try again. With this encouragement, Michael finished a short prayer. The Holmes began to pray regularly. They accepted a neighbor's invitation to attend church. As they walked into the chapel and heard the opening hymn, the Spirit whispered to them, This is true. Later, unseen and unasked, Michael hauled some trash from the meeting house. As he did, he felt a distinct impression. This is my house. Michael and Marion accepted church callings and served in their warden stake. They were sealed to each other and their three children. More children followed, bringing the total to twelve. The Holmes served as mission president and companion twice. The first clunky prayer was a small but faith-filled action that triggered the blessings of heaven. The Holmes fed the flames of faith by attending church and serving. Their dedicated discipleship over the years has led to a raging inferno that inspires to this day. A fire, however, must receive a constant supply of oxygen for the wood to ultimately release its full potential. As demonstrated by Michael and Marion Holmes, faith in Christ requires ongoing action for the blaze to continue. Small actions fuel our ability to walk along the covenant path and lead to the greatest blessings God can offer. But oxygen flows only if we figuratively keep moving our feet. Sometimes we need to make a bow and arrow 
before revelation comes as to where we should search for food. Sometimes we need to make tools before revelations come as to how to build a ship. Sometimes, at the direction of the Lord's prophet, we need to bake a small cake from the little oil and flour we have to receive an unfailing cruise of oil and barrel of flour. And sometimes we need to be still and know that God is God and trust in His timing. When you receive any blessing from God, you can conclude that you have complied with an eternal law governing reception of that blessing. But remember that the irrevocably decreed law is time-insensitive, meaning blessings come on God's timetable. Even ancient prophets in search of their heavenly home died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were persuaded and embraced them. If a desired blessing from God has not been received yet, you don't need to go crazy wondering what more you need to do. Instead, heed Joseph Smith's counsel to cheerfully do all things that lie in your power and then stand still with the utmost assurance to see the arm of God revealed. Some blessings are reserved for later even for the most valiant of God's children. Six months ago, a home-centered, church-supported plan to learn doctrine, strengthen faith, and fortify individuals and families was introduced. President Russell M. Nelson promised that the changes can help us survive spiritually, increase our gospel joy, and deepen our conversion to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. But it's up to us to claim these blessings. We are each responsible to open and study Come Follow Me for individuals and families, along with the scriptures and other Come Follow Me material. We need to discuss them with our family and friends and organize our Sabbath day to light a metaphorical fire. Or we can leave the resources sitting in a pile in our homes with the potential energy trapped inside. I invite you to faithfully activate heavenly power to receive specific blessings from God. Exercise the faith to strike the match and light the fire. Supply the needed oxygen while you patiently wait on the Lord. With these invitations, I pray that the Holy Ghost will guide and direct you so that you, like the faithful person described in Proverbs, will abound with blessings. I testify that your Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, live, are concerned with your welfare, and delight to bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My office in the Relief Society building has a perfect view of the Salt Lake Temple. And every night, regular as clockwork, the outdoor temple lights turn on at dusk. The temple is this steady, reassuring beacon outside my window. But one night this past February, my office remained exceptionally dim as the sun went down. As I looked out the window, the temple was dark. The lights hadn't turned on. 
And suddenly I felt very somber because I couldn't see the temple spires that I had glimpsed every single evening for years. Seeing darkness where I expected to see light reminded me that one of the fundamental needs we have in order to grow is to stay connected to the source of light, Jesus Christ. He's the source of our power, the light, and the life of the world. Without a strong connection to Him, we begin to spiritually die. Knowing that, Satan tries to exploit the worldly pressures that we all face. He works to dim our light, short-circuit the connection, cut off the power supply, leaving us alone in the dark. These pressures are common conditions in mortality, but Satan works very hard to isolate us and tell us we're the only ones experiencing them. Some of us are paralyzed with grief. When tragedies overtake us, when life hurts so much that we can't breathe, when we've taken a beating like the man on the road to Jericho and been left for dead, Jesus comes along. He pours oil in our wounds. He lifts us tenderly up. He takes us to an end. He looks after us. To those of us in grief, he says, I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. Christ heals wounds. Some of us are just so tired. Elder Holland said, It's not intended that we run faster than we have strength. But in spite of that, I know many of you run very, very fast, and that the energy and emotional supply sometimes registers close to empty. When expectations overwhelm us, we can step back and ask Heavenly Father what to let go of. Part of our life experience is knowing what not to do. But even so, sometimes life can be exhausting. Jesus assures us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ is willing to join with us in the yoke and pull in order to lighten our burdens. Christ is rest. Some of us feel we don't fit the traditional mold. For various reasons, we don't feel accepted or acceptable. The New Testament shows the great efforts that Jesus went to reach out to all kinds of people— lepers, tax collectors, children, Galileans, harlots, women, Pharisees, sinners, Samaritans, widows, Roman soldiers, adulterers, the ritually unclean. In almost every story, he's reaching out to someone who wasn't traditionally accepted in society. Luke 19 tells the story of the chief tax collector in Jericho named Zacchaeus. He climbed a tree in order to see Jesus walk by. Zacchaeus was employed by the Roman government and viewed as corrupt and a sinner. But Jesus saw him up in that tree and called to him, saying, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And when Jesus saw the goodness of Zacchaeus' heart and the things that he did for others, he accepted his offering, saying, This day is salvation come to this house, for he also is a son of Abraham. Christ tenderly told the Nephites, I've commanded that none of you should go away. Peter had that powerful epiphany in Acts 10 where he declared, God hath showed me that I should not call any person common or unclean. It's an unwavering requirement of Christian disciples and Latter-day Saints to show true love to one another. 
Jesus extends the same kind of invitation to us that he did to Zacchaeus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you. I will sup with you and you with me. Christ sees us in our tree. Some of us are splintering with questions. Not many years ago, I was weighed down and irritated with questions that I couldn't find answers to. Early one Saturday morning, I had a little dream. In the dream, I could see a gazebo, and I understood that I should go stand in it. It had five arches encircling it, but the windows were made out of stone. And I complained in the dream, not wanting to go inside because it was claustrophobic. But the thought came into my mind that the brother of Jared had patiently melted stones into clear glass. Glass is a stone that has undergone a state change. When the Lord touched the brother of Jared's stones, they glowed with light. And suddenly, I was filled with a desire to be in that gazebo more than any other place. It was the very place, the only place for me to truly see. The questions that were bothering me didn't go away. But more brightly in my mind was the question after I woke up, how are you going to increase your faith like the brother of Jared so that your stones can be turned into light? Our mortal brains are made to seek understanding and meaning in tidy bundles. I don't know all the reasons why the veil over mortality is so thick. This isn't the stage in our eternal development where we have all the answers. But it is the stage where we develop our assurance, or sometimes our hope, in the evidence of things not seen. Assurance comes in ways that aren't always easy to analyze, but there is light in our darkness. Jesus said, I am the light and the life and the truth of the world. For those seeking truth, it may seem at first to be the foolish claustrophobia of windows made out of stone. But with patience and faithful questions, Jesus can transform our windows of stone to glass and light. Christ is light to see. Some of us feel we can never be good enough. The scarlet dye of the Old Testament was not only colorful, but it was color fast, meaning that its vivid color stuck to the wool and wouldn't fade no matter how many times it was washed. Satan wields that reasoning like a club. White wool stained scarlet can never go back to being white. But Jesus Christ declares, My ways are higher than your ways. And the miracle of his grace is that when we repent of our sins, his scarlet blood returns us to purity. It isn't logical, but it's nevertheless true. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord says emphatically, He or she who has repented of sin, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. In essence, come. Let us reason together. You made mistakes, and all come short. Come unto me and repent. I will remember the sin no more. You can be whole again. I have a work for you to do. Christ is wool made white. But what are the practical steps? What is the key to reconnecting to the power of Jesus Christ when we're flickering? President Nelson said it very simply. 
The key is to make and keep sacred covenants. It is not a complicated way. Make Christ the center of your life. If you feel that the beacon of your testimony is sputtering and darkness is closing in, take courage. Keep your promises to God. Ask your questions. Patiently melt stone to glass. Turn to Jesus Christ, who loves you still. Jesus said, I am the light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. That means no matter how hard it tries, the darkness cannot put out that light ever. You can trust that, that His light will be there for you. We or people that we love may temporarily go dark. In the case of the Salt Lake Temple, the facility manager, Brother Val White, got a call almost immediately. People had noticed what was wrong with the temple lights. First, the staff went in person to every electrical panel in the, in the temple, and they manually turned the lights back on. Then they replaced the batteries in the automatic power supply and tested them to find out what had failed. It's hard to get the lights on back by yourself. We need friends. We need each other. Just like the temple facility staff, we can help each other by showing up in person, recharging our spiritual batteries, repairing what went wrong. Like Temple Square at Christmas time, we may only be one light bulb on a tree, but we still shine our small light, and all together we attract millions of people to the house of the Lord. Best of all, as President Nelson has encouraged, we can bring the Savior's light to ourselves and to people that are important to us by the simple act of keeping our covenants. In a variety of ways, the Lord rewards that faithful act with power and with joy. I testify you are beloved. The Lord knows how hard you are trying. You are making progress. Keep going. He sees all your hidden sacrifices and counts them to your good and the good of those you love. Your work is not in vain. You are not alone. His very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. He is surely with you. Take a few more steps on the covenant path, even if it's too dark to see very far. The lights will come back on. I testify of the truth in Jesus' words, and they are filled with light. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and you shall find me. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, this is a unique and pivotal time in history. We are blessed to live in the last dispensation before the second coming of the Savior. Near the commencement of this dispensation in 1829, the year before the Church was formally organized, a beloved revelation was received declaring that a marvelous work was about to come forth. This revelation established that those who desired to serve God qualify for such service through faith, hope, charity, and love with an eye single to the glory of God. Charity, which is the pure love of Christ, includes God's eternal love for all His children. My purpose this morning is to emphasize the essential role of that kind of love in missionary work, temple and family history work, 
and home-centered, church-supported, family religious observance. Love of the Savior and love of our fellow men and women is the primary attribute and motive for ministering and the spiritual purposes we were charged to undertake by our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, in the adjustments announced in 2018. I was exposed to the relationship between missionary work and love early in my life. When I was 11 years old, I received a patriarchal blessing from a patriarch who was also my grandfather. That blessing said in part, I bless you with great love for your fellow men, for thou shalt be called to carry the gospel to the world to win souls unto Christ. I understood even at that early age that sharing the gospel was based on a great love for all our Heavenly Father's children. As general authorities assigned to work on Preach My Gospel 15 years ago, we concluded that the attribute of love was essential to missionary work in our day, just as it has always been. Chapter 6 on Christ-like attributes, including charity and love, has consistently been the most popular chapter among missionaries. The emissaries of the Savior, most missionaries feel this kind of love, and when they do, their efforts are blessed. When members gain a vision of this kind of love, which is essential in assisting the Lord in His purpose, the Lord's work will be accomplished. I was privileged to have a small role in a marvelous example of this kind of love. When I was serving as president of the Pacific Islands area, I received a call from President R. Wayne Shute. As a young man, he served a mission in Samoa. Later, he returned to Samoa as a mission president. When he telephoned me, he was the Apia Samoa Temple president. One of his young missionaries, when he was mission president, was Elder O. Vincent Halleck, who is now the area president in the Pacific. President Shute had great love and respect for Vince and the entire Halleck family. Most of the family were members of the Church, but Vince's father, Otto Halleck, the patriarch of the family of German and Samoa descent, was not a member. President Shute knew I was attending a state conference and other meetings in America, Samoa, and he asked me if I would consider staying in Otto Halleck's residence with the view of sharing the gospel with him. My wife Mary and I stayed with Otto and his wife Dorothy in their beautiful home. At breakfast, I shared a gospel message and invited Otto to meet with the missionaries. He was kind but firm in refusing my invitation. He said he was pleased that many members of his family were Latter-day Saints, but he forcefully indicated that some of his Samoan mother's ancestors had been early Christian ministers in Samoa, and he felt a great allegiance to their traditional Christian faith. Nevertheless, we left as good friends. Later, when President Gordon B. Hinckley was preparing to dedicate the Suva Fiji Temple, he had his personal secretary, Brother Don H. Staley, call me in New Zealand to make arrangements. President Hinckley wanted to fly from Fiji to America, Samoa, to meet the Saints. A certain hotel used in previous visits was suggested, 
I asked if I could make different arrangements. Brother Staley said, you were the area president, that would be fine. I immediately called President Shute and told him that perhaps we had a second chance at spiritually blessing our friend Otto Halleck. This time, the missionary would be President Gordon B. Hinckley. <laughs> I asked if he thought it would be appropriate for the Halleck's to host all of us in President Hinckley's travel group. President Sister Hinckley, their daughter Jane, and Elder and Sister Jeffrey R. Holland were also part of the travel group. President Shute, working with the family, made all the arrangements. When we, were, when we arrived from pre Fiji after the temple dedication, we were warmly greeted. We spoke that evening to thousands of Samoan members and then proceeded to the Halleck family compound. When we gathered for breakfast the next morning, President Hinckley and Otto Halleck had already become good friends. It was interesting to me that they were having much the same conversation I had with Otto more than a year earlier, when Otto expressed his admiration for our Church but reaffirmed his commitment to his existing Church President Hinckley put his hand on Otto's shoulder and said, Otto, that's not good enough. You ought to be a member of the Church. This is the Lord's Church. You figuratively could see the resistive armor fall away from Otto with an openness to what President Hinckley said. This was the beginning of additional missionary teaching and a spiritual humility that allowed Otto Halleck to be baptized and confirmed a little over a year later. One year after that, the Halleck family was sealed as an eternal family in the temple. What touched my heart throughout this incredible experience was the overwhelming ministering love exhibited by President Wayne Chute for his former missionary, Elder Vince Halleck, and his desire to see the entire Halleck family united as an eternal family. When it comes to gathering Israel, we need to align our hearts with this kind of love and move away from feelings of mere responsibility or guilt to feelings of love and participation in the divine partnership of sharing the Savior's message, ministry, and mission with the world. As members, we can show our love for the Savior and our brothers and sisters throughout the world by making simple invitations. The new Sunday meeting schedule represents an exceptional opportunity for members to successfully and lovingly invite friends and associates to come and see and fill a Church experience. A spiritual sacrament meeting, hopefully as sacred as Elder Holland described yesterday, will be followed by a 50-minute meeting focused on the New Testament and the Savior, or relevant conference addresses also focused on the Savior and His doctrine. Some Relief Society sisters have wondered why they have been given a gathering assignment along with priesthood quorum members. There are reasons for this, and President Nelson set forth many of them in the last General Conference. He concluded, we simply cannot gather Israel without you. In our day, we are blessed that approximately 30 percent of our full-time missionaries are sisters. This provides additional incentive for Relief Society sisters to lovingly share the gospel. What is needed is a loving, compassionate, 
spiritual commitment by each of us, men, women, youth, and children, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we show love, kindness, and humility, many will accept our invitation. Those who choose not to accept our invitation will still be our friends. Love is also at the center of our temple and family history effort to gather Israel on the other side of the veil. When we learn of the trials and hardships our ancestors faced, our love and appreciation for them is magnified. Our temple and family history effort has been strengthened to a significant degree by the new adjustments in both the Sunday meeting schedule and the youth advancement in classes and quorums. These changes provide for earlier and more powerful attention to learning about our ancestors and gathering Israel on the other side of the veil. Both temple and family history work are greatly enhanced. The Internet is a powerful tool. The home is now our primary family history center. Our young members are exceptionally skilled in family history research and are spiritually motivated to perform baptisms for their ancestors who they have learned to love and appreciate. Since the change allowing many 11-year-olds to perform baptisms for the dead, temple presidents across the world report greatly increased attendance. One temple president informs us that there has been a remarkable increase in baptismal patrons and the addition of 11-year-olds brings more families. Even at their young age, they appear to sense reverence and purpose for the ordinance they are performing. It is beautiful to watch. I know our primary and youth leaders are and will continue to make family history and temple work a major effort. Relief Society sisters and priesthood brethren can lovingly help fulfill their temple and family history responsibility individually and also by assisting and inspiring children and youth to gather Israel on the other side of the veil. This is particularly important in the home and on the Sabbath. I promise that lovingly performing ordinances for ancestors will strengthen and protect our youth and families in a world that is becoming increasingly evil. I also personally testify that President Russell M. Nelson has received profoundly important revelations relating to temples and temple work. The new emphasis on home-centered gospel study and living and the resources that are provided by the Church are a great opportunity for lovingly preparing eternal families and individuals to meet and live with God. When a man and woman are sealed in the temple, they enter the holy order of matrimony in the new and everlasting covenant and order of the priesthood. Together, they obtain and receive priesthood blessings and power to direct the affairs of their family. Women and men have unique roles as outlined in the family of proclamation to the world, but their stewardships are equal in value and importance. They have equal power to receive revelation for their family. When they work together in love and righteousness, their decisions are heaven-blessed. Those who seek to know the will of the Lord as individuals and for their families must strive for righteousness, meekness, kindness, and love. Humility and love are the hallmark of those who seek the Lord's will, especially for their families. 
perfecting ourselves, qualifying ourselves for the blessings of covenants and preparing to meet God are individual responsibilities. We need to be self-reliant and anxiously engaged in making our homes a refuge from the storms that surround us and a sanctuary of faith. Parents have a responsibility to lovingly teach their children. Homes filled with love are a joy, a delight, and a literal heaven on earth. My mother's favorite hymn was Love at Home. Whenever she heard the first phrase, there is beauty all around, when there's love at home, she became visibly touched and teary. As children, we were aware that we lived in that kind of home. It was one of her highest priorities. In addition to a loving atmosphere in the home, President Nelson has focused on limiting media media use that disrupts our primary purposes. One adjustment that will benefit almost any family is to make the Internet, social media, and television a servant instead of a distraction, or even worse, a master. The war for the souls of all, but particularly children, is often in the home. As parents, we need to make sure that media content is both wholesome, age-appropriate, and consistent with the loving atmosphere we are trying to create. Teaching in our homes needs to be clear and compelling, but also spiritual, joyful, and full of love. I promise that as we focus on our love for the Savior and His Atonement, make Him the centerpiece of our efforts to gather Israel on both sides of the veil, minister to others, and individually prepare to meet God, the influence of the adversary will be diminished, and the joy, delight, and peace of the gospel will magnify our homes with Christ-like love. I testify of these doctrinal promises and bear witness of Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice in our behalf. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The congregation will now join the choir in singing, Come Ye Children of the Lord. After the singing, we will hear from Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he will be followed by Brother Tad R. Callister, who was released yesterday afternoon from his marvelous service as Sunday School General President. This is the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
In two weeks, we will celebrate Easter. The resurrection confirms the divinity of Jesus Christ and the reality of God the Father. Our thoughts turn to the Savior, and we ponder His matchless life and the infinite virtue of His great atoning sacrifice. I hope we also think about His pending return, when He will rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some time ago in Buenos Aires, Argentina, I participated in a conference with leaders from a wide variety of religious faiths. Their love for their fellow man was unmistakable. They were intent on relieving suffering and helping people rise above oppression and poverty. I reflected on the numerous humanitarian undertakings of this Church, including projects in collaboration with a number of the faith groups represented in the conference. I felt deep gratitude for the generosity of the members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that makes such Christ-like service possible. In that moment, the Holy Spirit affirmed two things to me. First, the work of ministering to temporal needs is vital and must continue. The second was unexpected, yet powerful and clear. It was this. Beyond selfless service, it is supremely important to prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When He comes, oppression and injustice will not only diminish, they will cease. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Poverty and suffering will not only decline, they will vanish. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Even the pain and sorrow of death will be done away. In that day an infant shall not die until he is old, and his life shall be as the age of a tree. And when he dies he shall not sleep, that is to say, in the earth, but shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and shall be caught up, and his rest shall be glorious. So yes, let us do all we can to relieve suffering and sorrow now, and let us devote ourselves more diligently to the preparations needed for the day when pain and evil are ended altogether, when Christ shall reign personally upon the earth, and the earth shall be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. It will be a day of redemption and judgment. The Anglican Bishop of Durham, Dr. N. T. Wright, has aptly described the significance of Christ's Atonement, Resurrection, and Judgment in overcoming injustice and putting all things right. He said, God has fixed a day on which He will have the world judged rightly by a man whom He has appointed. And this, of this He has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. 
The facts about Jesus of Nazareth, and especially about His resurrection from the dead, are the foundation of the assurance that the world is not random. It is not ultimately a chaos. That when we do justice in the present, we're not whistling in the dark trying to shore up a building that will ultimately collapse or to fix a car which is actually bound for the scrap heap. When God raised Jesus from the dead, that was the microcosmic event in which the ultimate macrocosmic act of judgment was contained in a nutshell, the seed of the ultimate hope. God declared in the most powerful way imaginable that Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah. In the greatest irony of history, Jesus himself underwent cruel and unjust judgment, coming to the place which symbolized and drew together all the myriad cruelties and injustices of history to bear that chaos, that darkness, that cruelty, that injustice in himself and to exhaust its power. End of quote. While at the conference in Buenos Aires that I mentioned earlier, the Spirit made clear to me that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is uniquely empowered and commissioned to accomplish the necessary preparations for the Lord's Second Coming. Indeed, it was restored for that purpose. Can you find anywhere else a people who embrace the present era as the prophesied dispensation of the fullness of times in which God has purposed to gather together all things, one thing, all things together in Christ? If you don't find here a community intent on accomplishing what needs to be accomplished for both the living and the dead to prepare for that day. If you don't find here an organization willing to commit vast amounts of time and funds to the gathering and preparation of a covenant people ready to receive the Lord, you won't find it anywhere. Speaking to the Church in 1831, the Lord declared, the keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth. Call upon the Lord that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it, and be prepared for the days to come, in the which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. What can we do to prepare now for that day? We can prepare ourselves as a people. We can gather the Lord's covenant people, and we can help redeem the promise of salvation made to the fathers, our ancestors. All of this must occur in some substantial measure before the Lord comes again. First and crucial for the Lord's return is the presence on the earth of a people prepared to receive Him at His coming. He has stated that those who remain upon the earth in that day, from the least to the greatest, shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice, and with the voice together sing this new song, saying, The Lord hath brought again Zion. The Lord hath gathered all things in one. The Lord hath brought down Zion from above. The Lord hath brought up Zion from beneath. In ancient times, God took the righteous city of Zion to Himself 
By contrast, in the last days, a new Zion will receive the Lord at His return. Zion is the pure in heart, a people of one heart and one mind, dwelling in righteousness with no poor among them. The Prophet Joseph Smith stated, We ought to have the building up of Zion as our greatest object. We build up Zion in our homes, wards, branches, and stakes through unity, godliness, and charity. We must acknowledge that the building up of Zion occurs in tumultuous times, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, of mourning, and of lamentation. And as a whirlwind, it shall come upon the face of the earth, saith the Lord. Thus the gathering into stakes becomes for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath, when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. Just as in former times we meet together oft to fast and to pray and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of our souls and to partake of the bread and water in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. As President Russell M. Nelson explained in General Conference last October, the long-standing objective of the Church is to assist all members to increase their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and His Atonement, to assist them in making and keeping their covenants with God, and to strengthen and seal their families. Accordingly, he emphasizes the significance of temple covenants, hallowing the Sabbath, and a daily feasting upon the gospel centered at home and supported by an integrated study curriculum at Church. We want to know about the Lord, and we want to know the Lord. An underlying effort in building Zion is the gathering of the Lord's long-dispersed covenant people. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the Ten Tribes. All who will repent, believe on Christ, and be baptized are His covenant people. The Lord Himself prophesied that before His return, the gospel would be preached in all the world to recover His people, which are of the house of Israel, and then shall the end come. Jeremiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither He had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. President Nelson has repeatedly emphasized that the gathering of Israel is the most important thing taking place on earth today. Nothing else compares in magnitude. Nothing else compares in importance. Nothing else compares in majesty. And if you choose to, you can be a big part of it. The Latter-day Saints have always been a missionary people. Hundreds of thousands have responded to mission calls since the beginning of the Restoration. Tens of thousands currently serve. And as Elder Quentin L. Cook has just taught, all of us can participate in simple and natural ways in love, inviting others to join us at church, visit in our homes, become part of our circle. Publication of the Book of Mormon was the signal that the gathering had begun. The Book of Mormon itself is the instrument of gathering and conversion. Also vital to the preparation for the Second Coming is the great redemptive effort on behalf of our ancestors. The Lord promised to send Elijah the prophet before the Second Coming, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
to reveal the priesthood and plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. Elijah did come, as promised. The date was April 3, 1836. The place was the Kirtland, Ohio Temple. In that place and in that moment, he did indeed confer the promised priesthood, the keys for the redemption of the dead and the union of husbands, wives, and families across all generations of time and throughout all eternity. With this, the purpose of creation—without this, I should say—the purpose of creation would be frustrated, and in that sense the earth would be cursed or utterly wasted. At the youth devotional preceding the dedication of the Rome-Italy Temple, the hundreds of young men and women in attendance displayed to President Nelson the cards they had prepared with names of their ancestors. They were ready to enter the temple to perform vicarious baptisms for those ancestors as soon as it opened. It was a supremely gratifying moment, yet but one example of the accelerating effort to establish Zion for the generations that have gone before. While we strive to be diligent in building up Zion, including our part in the gathering of the Lord's elect and the redemption of the dead, we should pause to remember that it is the Lord's work, and He is doing it. He is the Lord of the vineyard, and we are His servants. He bids us labor in the vineyard with our might this last time, and He labors with us. It would probably be more accurate to say He permits us to labor with Him. As Paul said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It is He who is hastening His work in its time, employing our admittedly imperfect efforts, our small means, the Lord brings about great things. This great and last dispensation is building steadily to its climax, Zion on earth being joined with Zion from above at the Savior's glorious return. The Church of Jesus Christ is commissioned to prepare and is preparing the world for that day. And so this Easter, let us truly celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it portends, His return to reign for a thousand years of peace, a righteous judgment and perfect justice for all, the immortality of all who ever lived upon this earth, and the promise of eternal life. Christ's resurrection is the ultimate assurance that all will be put right. Let us be about building up Zion to hasten that day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. At this season of the year, we particularly rejoice and reflect upon the Savior's Atonement. It is indeed the most supernal, mind-expanding, passionate doctrine this world or universe has ever known. It is what gives hope and purpose to our lives. Then, What then is the Atonement of Jesus Christ? In one sense, it is a series of divine events that commenced in the Garden of Gethsemane, continued on the cross, and culminated with the Savior's resurrection from the tomb. It was motivated by an incomprehensible love for each of us. It required a being who was sinless, who had infinite power over the elements, even death, who possessed a boundless capacity to suffer the consequences of all our sins and ailments, 
and who, in fact, descended beneath it all. This was the mission of Jesus Christ. This was his atonement. What, then, is its purpose? It was to make it possible for us to return to God's presence, become more like Him, and have a fullness of joy. This was done by overcoming four obstacles. First, physical death. Second, spiritual death caused by Adam and by our sins. Third, our afflictions and infirmities. And fourth, our weaknesses and imperfections. But how can the Savior accomplish this without violating the laws of justice? Suppose for a moment a man contemplating an exhilarating freefall makes a rash decision and spontaneously jumps from a small plane. After doing so, he quickly realizes the foolishness of his actions. He wants to land safely, but there is an obstacle, the law of gravity. He moves his arms with astounding speed, hoping to fly, but to no avail. He positions his body to glide or float so to slow the descent. But the law of gravity is unrelenting and unmerciful. He tries to reason with this basic law of nature. It was a mistake. I will never do it again. But his pleas fall on deaf ears. The law of gravity knows no compassion. It makes no exceptions. Fortuitously, though, the man suddenly feels something on his back. His friend in the plane, sensing the moment of foolishness, had placed a parachute there just before the jump. He finds the ripcord and pulls it. Relieved, he floats safely to the ground. We might ask, was the law of gravity violated, or did that parachute work within that law to provide a safe landing? When we sin, we are like the foolish man who jumped from the plane. No matter what we do on our own, only a crash landing awaits us. We are subject to the law of justice, which, like the law of gravity, is exacting and unforgiving. We can be saved only because the Savior, through His Atonement, mercifully provides us with a spiritual parachute of sorts. If we have faith in Jesus Christ and repent, meaning we do our part and pull the ripcord, then the protective powers of the Savior are unleashed on our behalf, and we can land spiritually unharmed. This is only possible, however, because the Savior overcame the four obstacles that can prevent our spiritual progress. First, death. He overcame death through His glorious resurrection. The Apostle Paul taught, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Second, sin. The Savior overcame sin and guilt for all those who repent. So deep and expansive is His cleansing power that Isaiah promised, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. On occasion, I have met with good saints who have trouble forgiving themselves, who have innocently but incorrectly placed limits on the Savior's redemptive powers. Unwittingly, they have converted an infinite atonement to a finite one that somehow falls short of their particular sin or weakness. But it is an infinite atonement because it encompasses and circumscribes every sin and weakness as well as every abuse or pain caused by others. Truman Madsen made this comforting observation. If there are some of you who have been tricked into the conviction that you have gone too far, that you have had the poison of sin which makes it impossible ever again to be what you could have been, then hear me. 
I bear testimony that you cannot sink farther than the sweeping, the light and sweeping intelligence of Jesus Christ can reach. I bear testimony that as long as there is one spark of the will to repent and reach, he is there. He did not just descend to your condition, he descended below it, that he might be in all and through all things the light of truth." One reason is so essential to understand the Savior's Atonement and its infinite implications is that with increased understanding comes an increased desire to forgive ourselves and others. Even though we may believe in Christ's cleansing powers, the question often arises, How do I know if I've been forgiven of my sins? If we feel the Spirit, then that is our witness that we have been forgiven or that the cleansing process is taking place. President Henry B. Eyring taught, If you have felt the influence of the Holy Ghost, you may take it as evidence that the Atonement is working in your life. Some have asked, But if I have been forgiven, why do I still feel guilt? Perhaps in God's mercy, the memory of that guilt is a warning, a spiritual stop sign of sorts that at least for a time cries out when additional temptations confront us, don't go down that road. You know the pain it can bring. In this sense, it serves as a protection, not a punishment. Is it possible then to remember our sins and still be free of guilt? Alma remembered his sins even years after he repented. But when he cried unto Jesus for mercy, he said, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. How could he remember his sins but have no pain or guilt? Because when we repent, we are born of God. We become, as the scriptures say, new creatures in Christ. With perfect honesty, we can now say, I am not the man or woman who committed those past sins. I am anew and transform being. Third, afflictions and infirmities. Alma prophesied that Christ shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Why? That his bowels may be filled with mercy, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. How does he accomplish this? Sometimes he removes the affliction. Sometimes he strengthens us to endure, and sometimes he gives us an eternal perspective to better understand their temporary nature. After Joseph Smith had languished in Liberty Jail for about two months, he finally cried out, O God, where art thou? Instead of providing instant relief, God responded, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, and then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Joseph now understood that this bitter experience was but a dot on the eternal spectrum. With this enhanced vision, he wrote the saints from that same prison cell, Dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God. Because of the Savior's Atonement, we can have an eternal perspective that gives meaning to our trials and hope for our relief and fourth, weaknesses and imperfections. Because of his atonement, the Savior has enabling powers, sometimes referred to as grace, that can help us overcome our weaknesses and imperfections and thus assist us in our pursuit to become more like him. Moroni so taught, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, 
that by his grace he may be perfect in Christ. There seems at least two channels or means of availing ourselves of those enabling powers that can refine, even perfect us. First, the saving ordinances. The scriptures tell us, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. Sometimes we may think of ordinances as a checklist necessary for exaltation. But in truth, each unleashes a godly power that helps us become more like Christ. For example, when we are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, we are made clean, thus becoming more holy like God. In addition, through the Holy Ghost, our minds may be enlightened and our hearts softened so we can think and feel more like Him. And when we are sealed as spouses, we inherit the right to thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers as gifts from God. A second channel for these enabling powers is the gifts of the Spirit. Because of Christ's atonement, we are eligible to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and its accompanying spiritual gifts. These gifts are attributes of godliness. Therefore, every time we acquire a gift of the Spirit, we become more like God. No doubt, that is why the Scriptures enjoin us on multiple occasions to seek these gifts. President George Q. Cannon taught, No man ought to say, Oh, I cannot help this. It is my nature. He is not justified in it for the reason that God has promised to give gifts that will eradicate our weaknesses. If any of us are imperfect, it is our duty to pray for the gift that will make us perfect. In summary, the Savior's atonement gives us life for death, beauty for ashes, healing for hurt, and perfection for weakness. It is heaven's antidote to the obstacles and struggles of this world. In the Savior's final week of mortality, he said, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Because the Savior performed his atonement, there is no external force or event or person, no sin or death or divorce that can prevent us from achieving exaltation, provided we keep God's commandments. With that knowledge, we can press forward with good cheer and absolute assurance that God is with us in this heavenly quest. I bear my witness that the Savior's atonement is not only infinite in scope, but individual in reach, that it can not only return us to God's presence, but enable us to become like Him, the crowning goal of Christ's atonement. Of that, I bear my grateful and certain witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We are grateful for the beautiful messages we have heard and for the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square for the uplifting music they have provided this morning. The choir will now favor us with O Thou Rock of Our Salvation. The concluding speaker for this session will be our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Following his remarks, the choir will close the meeting by singing, Come, Follow Me. The benediction will then be offered by Sister Jean B. Bingham, Relief Society General President.
My beloved brothers and sisters, my wife Wendy and I rejoice in being with you on this Sabbath morning. Much has happened since our last general conference. New temples have been dedicated in Concepcion, Chile, Barranquilla, Colombia, and Rome, Italy. We experienced a rich outpouring of the Spirit at these sacred events. I congratulate the many women and men who have recently read the Book of Mormon and discovered joy and hidden treasures. I'm inspired by reports about miracles received. I marvel at 11-year-old young men who, now as deacons, worthily pass the sacrament each Sunday. They go to the temple along with our 11-year-old young women who are now eagerly learning and serving as beehives. Both young men and young women are preaching gospel truths with clarity and conviction. I rejoice with children and youth who are helping to teach the gospel in their homes as they work with their parents to follow the home-centered church-supported curriculum. We received this photo of four-year-old Blake, who early on a Saturday morning grabbed a church book and exclaimed, I need to feed my spirit. Blake, we are thrilled with you and others who are choosing to feed their spirits by feasting on the truths of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And we delight in knowing that many are receiving the power of God in their lives as they worship and serve in the temple. As many of you know, our family experienced a tender separation three months ago when our daughter, Wendy, departed from this mortal life. In the final days of her battle with cancer, I was blessed with the opportunity to have a farewell daddy-daughter conversation. I held her hands and told her how much I loved her and how grateful I was to be her father. I said, you married in the temple and faithfully honored your covenants. You and your husband welcomed seven children into your home and raised them to be devout disciples of Jesus Christ, valiant church members, and, and contributing citizens. And they have chosen spouses of that same caliber. Your daddy is very, very proud of you. You have brought me much joy. She quietly responded, Thank you, Daddy. It was a tender, tearful moment for us. During her 67 years, we worked together, sang together, and often skied together. But that evening, we talked of things that matter most such as covenants, ordinances, obedience, faith, family, fidelity, love, and eternal life. 
We miss our daughter greatly. However, because of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not worry about her. As we continue to honor our covenants with God, we live in anticipation of our being with her again. Meanwhile, we are serving the Lord here, and she is serving him there in paradise. Actually, my wife and I visited paradise earlier this year. <laughs> paradise, California, that is. As it happened, our scheduled visit there came less than 40 hours after our daughter departed from this world. We, along with Elder Kevin W. Pearson and his wife, June, were bolstered by the saints of the Chico, California stake. We learned of their great faith, their ministering, and the miracles that occurred even amidst their devastating losses from the most destructive wildfire in the history of California. While there, we spoke at length with the young police officer, John, who was one of many brave first responders. He recalled the thick darkness that descended upon Paradise on November 8, 2018 as flames and embers raced through the town, devouring property and possessions like a scourge and leaving nothing but piles of ash and stark brick chimneys. For 15 hours, John drove through an impenetrable darkness that was streaked with javelins of threatening embers as he helped person after person, family after family, escape to safety, all at the peril of his own life. Yet during that strenuous ordeal, what terrified John most was his all-consuming question, where is my family? After many long, terrifying hours of anguish, he finally learned of their safe evacuation. The account of John's concern for his family has prompted me to speak today with those of you who may ask when approaching the end of your mortal life, where is my family? In that coming day when you will complete your mortal probation and enter the spirit world, you will be brought face to face with that heart-wrenching question, where is my family? Jesus Christ teaches the way back to our eternal home. He understands our Heavenly Father's plan of eternal progression better than any of us. After all, He is the keystone of it all. He is our Redeemer, our Healer, and our Savior. Ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, Jesus the Christ has offered his mighty arm to help all who choose to follow him. Repeatedly, scriptures record that despite all kinds of sins from all kinds of people, his arms are outstretched still. The spirit in each of us naturally yearns for family love to last forever.
Love songs perpetuate a false hope that love is all you need if you want to be together forever. And some erroneously believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides a promise that all people will be with their loved ones after death. In truth, the Savior himself has made it abundantly clear that while his resurrection assures that every person who ever lived will indeed be resurrected and live forever, much more is required if we want to have the high privilege of exaltation. Salvation is an individual matter, but exaltation is a family matter. Listen to these words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ to his prophet. Quote, All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead." Close quote. So, what is required for a family to be exalted forever? We qualify for that privilege by making covenants with God, keeping those covenants, and receiving essential ordinances. This has been true since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, Noah and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, Lehi and Sariah, and all other devoted disciples of Jesus Christ since the world was created have made the same covenants with God. <clears throat> they have received the same ordinances that we as members of the Lord's restored church today have made. Those covenants that we receive at baptism and in the temple. The Savior invites all to follow him into the waters of baptism and in time to make additional covenants with God in the temple and receive and be faithful to those further essential ordinances. All of these are required if we want to be exalted with our families and with God forever. The anguish of my heart is that many people whom I love, whom I admire and respect, decline his invitation. They ignore the pleadings of Jesus Christ when he beckons, come, follow me. I understand why God weeps. I also weep for such friends and relatives. They're wonderful men and women devoted to their family and civic responsibilities. They give generously of their time, energy, and resources, and the world is better for their efforts. But they have chosen not to make covenants with God. They have not received the ordinances that will exalt them and with their families and bind them together forever. How I wish I could visit with them and invite them to seriously consider the enabling laws of the Lord. 
I've wondered what I could possibly say so that they would feel how much the Savior loves them and know how much I love them and come to recognize how covenant-keeping women and men can receive a fullness of joy. They need to understand that while there is a place for them hereafter, with wonderful men and women who also chose not to make covenants with God, that is not the place where families will be reunited and be given the privilege to live and progress forever. That is not the kingdom where they will experience the fullness of joy, of never-ending progression and happiness. Those consummate blessings can come only by living in an exalted celestial realm with God our eternal Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and our wonderful, worthy, and qualified family members. I feel to say to my resident friends, in this life you've never settled for second best in anything. Yet you resist fully embracing the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. You are choosing to settle for second best. The Savior said, in my Father's house are many mansions. However, however, as you choose not to make covenants with God, you are settling for a most meager roof over your head throughout all eternity. I would further entreat my reticent friends by saying, pour out your heart to God. Ask Him if these things are true. Make time to study his words, really study. If you truly love your family and if you desire to be exalted with them throughout eternity, pay the price now through serious study and fervent prayer to know these eternal truths and then to abide by them. If you're not sure you even believe in God, start there. Understand that in the absence of experiences with God, one can doubt the existence of God. So, put yourself in a position to begin having experiences with Him. Humble yourself. Pray to have eyes to see God's hand in your life and in the world around you. Ask Him to tell you if He is really there, if He knows you. Ask him how he feels about you, and then listen. One such dear friend of mine had limited experiences with God, but he longed to be with his departed wife. So he asked me to help him. I encouraged him to meet with our missionaries in order to understand the doctrine of Christ and learn of gospel covenants, ordinances, and blessings. That he did, but he felt the course they advised would require him to make too many changes in his life. He said, those commandments and covenants are just too difficult for me. Also, I can't possibly pay tithing, and I don't have time to serve in the church. Then he asked me, once I die, Please do the necessary temple work for my wife and me so that we can be together again. (laughs) 
Thankfully, I'm not this man's judge. <laughs> but I do question the efficacy of proxy temple work for a man who had the opportunity to be baptized in this life, to be ordained to the priesthood and receive temple blessings while here in mortality, but who made the conscious decision to reject that course. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. Now, as president of his church, I plead with you who have dis distanced yourselves from the church and with you who have not yet really sought to know that the Savior's Church has been restored, do the spiritual work to find out for yourselves. And please do it now. Time is running out. I testify that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. His Church and the fullness of His gospel have been restored to bless our lives with joy here and hereafter. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Our dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the firm foundation of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ that we have heard confirmed again in the words of thy servants this day. We thank thee for thy love that is poured about upon each one of us, wherever we are and whatever our situation, and we offer our hearts to thee. We are grateful for the blessings of the gospel in our individual lives and pray that we would make those choices that we could enjoy those blessings in full. We pray that that would help us to share our love and our light, that others around us would be prepared for the second coming of thy dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for these favors and blessings and thank thee for every blessing that we enjoy at thy hand. And do so in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.